Exodus chapter 20, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, there'll be uh, the text on the screens to my sides. You can follow along there. We'll actually back up to chapter 19, verse 16, to see a bit of the setting before we read the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And now fast forward to chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word for us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make our hearts open and receptive to your word. May we change our views of you where that's needed. May we change our 
well, what we're trusting in where that's needed, may we change, Lord, our behavior where that's needed. We pray you would use your word, Lord, for your glory to build up your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You could be seated. Well, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase, the Ten Commandments? Imagine we didn't just read it. What comes to mind when you're out and about and you overhear there or you see something on a billboard? The Ten Commandments, or perhaps it'd be easier to imagine what the Ten Commandments brings to mind for other people. Maybe one thinks of the Charlton Heston movie. That's a really old guy in an old movie, kids. Or maybe one would think about the debates that frequently take place in our country about whether the Ten Commandments should be hung in public places like courthouses and schools. Perhaps related to that, one might think of the Ten Commandments as building blocks to a healthy society. Or maybe one hears the Ten Commandments and you think of the Ten Commandments of something else. This is popular on the internet these days. There's the Ten Commandments of foodies and the Ten Commandments of architecture and the Ten Commandments of effective leadership, the Ten Commandments of acceptance. Or maybe someone else just thinks, oh yeah, that old stuffy morality that fundamentalists hold to. It was fine for grandmas of old, but come on, not today. And others might think the Ten Commandments equals the eternal, unchanging, moral law of God. And no doubt some here will hear Ten Commandments and think, oh yeah, that ten-point test that I know I'm always failing. Well, the Ten Commandments are a bit tricky to understand and apply not least because of the cultural baggage that some of us bring to the table, but also because of the biblical and theological questions that might come to mind. Are these four New Testament Christians today? What does the New Testament do with the Ten Commandments? How do the Ten Commandments relate to Israel as a nation? Or how do they relate to the other commandments we find in the Old Testament? Not least those we'll find in chapter 21 to 23 in weeks ahead. Seemingly strange commandments. Well, on the surface, the Ten Commandments are plain. They're simple. They're succinctly stated, at least most of them are. They make sense to a sensible person, we could say. But to do them justice and to apply them properly, we have to first understand them in their historical and literary context. We have to understand what God was up to here. We have to understand what they were for. And we have to understand how the Bible uses them and, and develops them in other parts. So here's the plan for today. We'll actually cover all ten of the Ten Commandments this one week. Uh, maybe sometime in the future we'll come back and do a sort of mini-series, perhaps ten weeks on Ten Commandments. That's a legitimate way to treat the Ten Commandments and talk about them. But what I want to do today is give you more of an overview and a theology of the Ten Commandments as we treat them as a, a bit of a whole. 
we'll consider four aspects to the Ten Commandments. The God of the Ten Commandments, the ethics of the Ten Commandments, the covenant of the Ten Commandments, and the future of the Ten Commandments. So there's our outline. Sermon is preached. We can sing one more song and go home. No, not really. We'll take these a bit at a time. The Ten Commandments... Let's consider first the God of the Ten Commandments. The God of the Ten Commandments is the God who, at this time in this setting, has come down upon Mount Sinai with terrifying, unapproachable glory and holiness. We saw that last week. He's the God who draws near to his people. He's the God who draws them in. But because he dwells in unapproachable glory and holiness and because they are sinners, they cannot come up the mountain. They can't even touch the base of the mountain or they will die. And yet in his kindness, he speaks for them all to hear. And he speaks this, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. This is sort of the preface or the preamble some have called it, to the Ten Commandments. God uses his personal name here, reflected in all caps, L-O-R-D. This is the Hebrew Yahweh, as you probably know. This is God's personal name. This is his self-disclosed name, showing that he is the self-existing God, because it means, I am. I am who I am, he said to Moses back in chapter 3. He's the God who is. He's the God who self-defines and self-discloses. He's the God who self-exists. And that God is their God. Your God, God says. The God who brought them out of slavery. Reminding them once again what he's done. As he's done so many times before. Well, from the preface or the preamble of the Ten Commandments... The first three, likewise, reveal much about God. Of course, all of them do, but these directly. Like the first commandment, in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Of course, in the biblical account, there are no other gods. So this must mean that we aren't to acknowledge any so-called gods as God. Remember, these people had come out of Egypt not long ago, just, just a, a handful of weeks. And they had been in Egypt their whole lives. Every one of them, their whole lives before this had been in Egypt. In, in that swamp-filled, swarming with gods kind of land where even Pharaoh himself considered himself a god. Their ancestors had been among these Egyptians for 430 years. So no doubt that the average Israelite at this time at the base of Mount Sinai needed to begin to fully grasp there is one God. There are no other gods. God alone is God and he must be treated as God with proper worship, with obedience, with honor and with trust and dependence. That's the first command. Leading to it is the second command. Verse 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. This means no idols of the false gods 
but it also means no images of the true God. You see, God is spirit. He's invisible. He's everywhere. He, he doesn't have an image. He doesn't reveal himself to us in a face. And so we shouldn't draw him and say, look, this is him. This is God. This, this is what he looks like. No, he doesn't. No matter how good you draw or paint, no matter how pretty it is, it's not God. He's infinite. We're not to imagine him as something visible. You're not to imagine a, a giant Colonel Sanders or the Lincoln Memorial with a different face upon it. Why? Well, verse 5, there in the middle of it. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He's the only God. He can't be contained in images. He's also a God of justice, verse 6. He's a God of steadfast love, verse 6. And so this jealousy and this justice and this love should triangulate in our motivations to serve the one and true, the only God. Leading to the third command in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't take it in vain. Don't make it empty. Don't treat it lightly. This doesn't just refer to carelessly saying God like a replacement for a cuss word or an exclamation. You know, oh my God, oh Lord. Though that's a start. That is a start. I think the third commandment does concern any kind of careless, flippant use of Yahweh or God or Lord, any of the divine names or any of his attributes. That might have something to say to, you know, the expression, holy cow. Well, holy, the Lord alone is holy. Let's reserve that for him, not for cows, not for exclamations, not for Cubs games. The Lord alone is holy. You don't take his name in vain. Well, each of these first three commands could be unpacked at much greater length. I'd encourage you to have a book on hand about the Ten Commandments, like Kevin DeYoung's new little book on the Ten Commandments. That would be great at giving you more time and space to think through what really is involved in these commands. But we can summarize the first three like this. God is singular and supreme. He is a spirit not to be drawn or imagined as some created thing. And he is to be spoken of carefully. Now, secondly, let's think about the ethics of the Ten Commandments. The ethics. In some ways, we've already considered some of the ethics of the Ten Commandments in these first three. And by ethics, I mean the morality of them, the, the teaching of them, the, the behavior and attitudes that are both prescribed and prohibited. But let's take a step back as we think about the ethics of the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? Where did they come from? Well, of course, they came from God. We know that. But they may have been around and known somewhat, somehow, before Mount Sinai. You see, Exodus 20 is special. This is definitely the package of certain commandments. This is the codification of certain 
commandments. And we're going to see it has a covenant context that's very important. But these laws, these understandings, these assumptions didn't come out of the blue in Exodus 20. When we read the book of Genesis, we see that these things are sort of assumed and applied. And we know from within the story itself in Genesis that Cain killing his brother was bad and God didn't like it. And he should have known better. In Genesis, we see examples of mothers and fathers not being honored. And the narrator and or God lets us know that this is frowned upon. We read examples of lying and stealing in Genesis. And these are assumed to be bad and they should have known better. But how? How do they know better? Well, one Jewish uh, understanding is that there must have been some private revelation of the law before the actual giving of the law. Probably a more likely understanding is what we find in Romans 2. In Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul can say of Gentiles in his day who don't have the law, so it's not exactly the same as what we have in Genesis, but, but before the law or with no law, Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Paul insists that every human being made in the image of God, though fallen, still has a conscience. So this explains why you go to any culture and there are assumptions of right and wrong. There are agreed upon principles to, to make society work. And, and oftentimes they're mirroring some parts of the Ten Commandments. They didn't just come up with these because they work, though they do work. It's not just practical, it's theological. A law written on the human heart. God has left his imprint upon us. So there's a sense of right and wrong and a sense of guilt. And there's also a theological explanation for why People try to ignore any law written on their hearts. Or when they try to be selective about the laws written on their hearts. This is in Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. They don't want to own up to it. We get that. The Bible talks about that. With the Ten Commandments, there really is something good and beautiful and true about them. We call them commandments or laws, and there's certainly something to that. God says, you shall not, or you shall. But these ten words, as they're called in Exodus 34, ten words, they are good. They are for our good. They're, they're not just laws like God loves drawing lines waiting for people to step over them so he can smash their toes. No, these are good things. These are paths of human flourishing. You could say this is something of the best life in this world. Honoring father and mother comes with it divine blessing that Paul is still talking about in Ephesians 6. 
because human beings are made in God's image, murder is really bad. It's really wrong. It's playing God with life and death as if we had any right to. And because marriage is a gift from God and is beautiful and the marital bed is pleasurable, going outside of marriage for sexual pleasure is really upside down. It's really twisted. I know it's, it's really common in our culture, but it's really upside down and backwards and not the way God intended it. Turning and twisting of what God gave us for our good and for our best. Because God made man to work and to manage, stealing stuff is really messed up. It's really wrong. It's really upside down kind of stuff. It's, it's an inversion of God's intentions for this world he made good. Even coveting, the last one on the list, which for many of us may seem the most petty or the least harmful. So what if I covet? So what if I want your car? So what if I would wish to have your house? What's, what's wrong with that? Why is that on the list? Well, coveting breeds discontentment. Coveting often leads to stealing or trying to cheat people out of their stuff. It is not charitable to covet someone else's stuff as if you should have it and they shouldn't have it. It's not wishing good and well for them. You see, these things are forbidden because... There is another way of life, a better way of life. And so what we have in the Ten Commandments, in part, is a basic guide to human flourishing. Didn't Jesus summarize the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22? As really being reduced to two commandments, the two great commandments. He said, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the whole law can be summarized in these two headings. And indeed, the first four of the Ten Commandments relate to God. They are vertical in their focus. And then the, the last six relate to others. They're horizontal in their focus. This is what Jesus said. Love God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. Commandments 1 through 4. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is 5 through 10. Notice, according to Jesus, that love is what holds them together. Love is what drives not making images of God or not taking his name in vain. Love is what should motivate us to not covet another man's goods. And yet, if we zoom back down into the actual giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. There's something more specific than just rules for human flourishing. There's something very national here. There's something covenantal going on. And so thirdly, let's consider the covenant of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not just universal, eternal laws of morality. 
but something more like a constitution for a nation. That nation being Israel. They are the ones, verse 1, who've been brought out of the land and out of slavery. They are the ones, uh, verse, what, verse 17, looking for the land. No, verse 12, they're the ones that are going to go into the land and hopefully have a long life as they honor mother and father. Do you remember from last week in chapter 19, where God said in verse 4, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I said last week that we would come back to chapter 19, verse 5, and consider what covenant is in mind there or is in view. Well, the giving of the Ten Commandments certainly leans upon and builds upon what we call the Abrahamic covenant, which we see so much of in Genesis. Indeed, the whole book of Exodus, we could say, is an extension of, in the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and his offspring. But there is also another covenant context emerging now by Exodus 19 and 20. There's an overlap and a distinction between two covenants, Abrahamic and what we now call Mosaic. This is the Mosaic covenant. In the New Testament, it'll be called the Old Covenant because by then a new covenant will come. It'll be called in the New Testament uh, the The first covenant, not because it was the first chronologically, but because it's first in relation to the new covenant, which comes later. Well, the Ten Commandments are part of this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, at least as they're packaged and codified here. And this covenant is a bilateral covenant. This covenant, unlike the Abrahamic covenant, is a conditional covenant. If, if you obey, if you keep covenant. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't like that. Remember in Genesis 17 when God ratified the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep as God made the sacrifice, parted the two halves of the animal, and walked through it signifying he made a covenant with himself. Well, here there's covenant between God and his people, and they must obey, and they must keep We'll see the covenant and commandment connection as we read on. Like in chapter 24, then Moses took the book of the covenant. Now it's a book by then. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. You see it in Exodus 34, covenant and commandments together. The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are covenant stipulations. Scholars have noted that the Mosaic Covenant follows the pattern of these ancient Suzerain vassal treaties, 
suzerain vassal treaties. You Google something like that, you may not get the spelling right, but it'll pop up. These ancient treaties were made between a king and a vulnerable people that that king stepped in to rescue and help and promised to protect going forward if they would come under that king and submit to him. If they would come under this king and submit to him, there'd be blessing. And if not, there'd be trouble. And so these suzerain vassal treaties all begin with a a preface, a preamble about the king. Then they review a historical moment where they were rescued by the king. And then the obligations of the covenant are spelled out specifically. Blessings and warnings are explained. Well, that's what we have here in the Mosaic Covenant. And so here in Exodus 20, we sit at a fork in the road. God has said, if you obey, if you keep covenant, the people in chapter 19, verse 8 said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then God came down and he spoke and gave the Ten Commandments. And what do we find on the other side? Verses 18 to 20. Just look down in your Bibles. How do they respond to the Ten Commandments? They tell Moses, you tell us what he said. We don't want to hear him. We'll die. Now, God hasn't said that. God has said that he intends to speak so that they all can hear his voice. God has said, come up to this point at the base of the mountain, but no further. And they have responded by backing up three or four football fields length and saying, "Uh uh-uh, no way, we don't even want to hear his voice. So it's not a good moment. They're fearful. Moses says, don't be afraid. All this is so you fear him. (laughs) Wait, what, Moses? Well, there's bad fear and there's good fear. You're you're doing bad fear right now. You think he's only out to kill you with his voice or presence, but he's not. He's come to test you. He's come to give you good and godly fear that you would obey him. But when the people hear this, they just stood far off. Where does it go from here? Well, fourth, we come to the future of the Ten Commandments. The future. If Exodus 19 and 20 sit at a fork in the road, well, the road ahead is one of failure and faithfulness. Failure on Israel's part, faithfulness on God's part. We could look to specific examples of their failures in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, or we can look to a passage like, like Nehemiah 9, which simply summarizes all the failings alongside God's faithfulness. In Nehemiah 9, after uh, the return from exile, there's a praise song. They're celebrating God's faithfulness alongside Israel's unfaithfulness. And they sing... You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Verse 16. 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Well, that's good news there at the end, but what of this covenant that appears to be hanging on by a thread? It's all one-sided. What will come of this? Well, Jeremiah the prophet, writing 600 years before the birth of Christ, says a day is coming. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's our passage. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, someday in the future. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one need to teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see what's happening here? You see the contrast? A law, external, on stone, at least by Exodus 24, versus a law written on the heart. A new law written on the heart. This isn't the Romans 2.15 kind of law on the heart. This is a, a new law on the heart. A new covenant where God gives the desire and the ability to obey. Not perfectly, but genuinely. It means more than forgiveness, more than just his patience. It means also his power. It means also his shaping and forming and directing and keeping. That's what we see in the New Testament. Our passage goes and our thinking goes like this, from a fork in the road to failures and, and faithfulness to a future hope described by Jeremiah, but then landing squarely in the New Testament with fulfillment. This is why it's so important what Jesus said in the Lord's Supper when he passed the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, the Jeremiah 31 covenant, the covenant that forgives sin, keeps you in, and begins to change your heart. We saw it last week in Hebrews 12. We Christians haven't come to Mount Sinai, this external physical mountain that can be touched. We've come to Mount Zion, a spiritual mountain where Christ is. And Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. You could go to Hebrews 8 and 9 and see two whole chapters unpacking this contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Hebrews 8 and 9 together as a family or with friends even today. Write it down so you remember to. 
And see the distinction there and how important it is. Hear this from 2 Corinthians 3 about the difference. Paul can say about himself and his apostolic partners, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 3, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that's how he's describing Sinai. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, that's Exodus 34, we'll get to that eventually. If that ministry of death was being brought to an end, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit in this age, won't it even have more glory? Indeed, the old covenant had glory and it had purpose, but the new covenant has more glory and more lasting purpose. Paul goes on, for if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's Sinai, the ministry of righteousness, that's Christ, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that what is permanent have glory. So you see the contrast here. The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is forever. The old covenant was conditional and bilateral. The new covenant is unconditional. It's God's doing. The old covenant was breakable. New covenant, unbreakable. In the old covenant, it had an external kind of orientation to it. The new covenant is internal. It comes with internal change. In the old covenant, God didn't provide the means of obedience. In the new covenant, he does. You might say then, well, why did God give us that old covenant, that Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments even? Well, in one primary purpose, we could say God intended to drive home the need for his people to, to look for something outside of themselves, to show them their sin, to expose it, for it to be so obvious, for them to feel helpless, for them to cry out for an answer. We see this in Galatians 3, where Paul asks that very question, why then the law? Well, he says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 21, he asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life or could save if we obeyed it, well then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, before the New Testament, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come. So we are no longer under a guardian. St. Augustine said the usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament law functions something like an MRI. You don't want to find out that there's bad news when you hear the results of the MRI. You might go to the MRI with some fear and trepidation. What are they going to say? What are they going to find? But any sensible person would rather know than not know if there's something wrong. Well, the law is an MRI. It exposes our sin. It says, why don't you see if you can jump 100 yards every day? Keep at it. Don't fail. You know, who can deny that we're in trouble. If you're not a Christian, you have to understand that before you can get to understand the cross and grace and the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and restoration to God, you have to first come to terms with the fact that you and me and everyone since Adam and Eve, we've rebelled against God, we've gone astray, we're in trouble, we have guilt that needs addressing. Trying harder won't do it. You've done it before. Being a little bit better at it than your neighbor isn't enough. You have your own guilt to deal with, and where does it go? God doesn't sweep it under a rug. And so if you're not yet at guilt, then don't move on to grace. Jesus showed us that this is the way to handle things in someone's salvation when he encountered in the gospel accounts those who were really good law keepers, or so they thought, like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and says, what commandments you got for me? And Jesus says, well, you know, the basic commandments. And he goes through six or seven of the Ten Commandments. And that guy says, I've been doing those since my youth. What else you got? Like, do you have like a, an eleventh commandment, you know, for those who are on spiritual steroids? You got a harder one than those? Come on, let me have it. For that person, well, Jesus just gave him more law. He wasn't ready for grace. He didn't see his need yet. Jesus said, why don't you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor? A law. And the man went away sad because he was very rich. But if you come to understand your guilt, and today you find yourself ready for grace, well, then perhaps you would join us with great gratitude to our Lord. You see, if you ask the question, what then is the point of law? Is there any law for Christians? Are they commanded anything? Are they just free now to do whatever they want? Well, on the one hand, we would say Christ fulfills the law. Yes, he was perfect for us. He, he fulfills the demands of the law that none of us ever could have kept. Christ suffered for our sins once. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He fulfills the law in that sense. 
We could say that Christ embodies the law, such as in that fourth commandment, the Sabbath, rest. On the seventh day, they had to rest. What happens to that in the New Testament? Well, it becomes clear that Jesus is the Sabbath. He embodies it. He's the welcome mat of the Sabbath. Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has rested from his works. Coming to Christ is like resting in him. It's like not working anymore to try to earn. You can't. Christ is now the Sabbath. And so every day now for the Christian is simply resting in him. A six-in-one principle of work and rest is probably wise. It seems to be rooted in creation, but that's not the same thing as the capital S, Sabbath, as revealed in the book of Exodus and required throughout all Old Testament times until the Sabbath is embodied and personified in Jesus in whom we rest. We could say that in the New Testament, Christ transforms the law. So in Matthew 5, he says, you know, murder? Well, I say if you hate a man, if you call him a fool, you're in danger of hell. He says, you know that law, do not commit adultery? I say that if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus, as the Lord of the law, heightens it when we come to the New Testament. We don't find in the New Testament that Christians are wild, crazy, free to do whatever they want to do. No, instead, because Christ has fulfilled the law and forgiven their sins, and because he embodies the Sabbath and welcomes them in to his rest, and because He gives new hearts that want to do his will. Not perfectly yet, but but earnestly, genuinely, yes. And because he transforms the law into a heart matter. Not just external, but a heart matter. We could say Christ internalizes the law for us. So when we come to something like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6, what a different thing we have there. One piece of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, it's singular, one bit of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Now, what does that look like in a command? Now, sometimes it is commanded, be patient. But in the fruit of the Spirit list, it's just there. It's part of what the, what the Spirit produces. I mean, how would you actually obey patience? How do you, you know, grit and work real hard and say, I'm going to be patient! Well, you just blew it. That's not it. That's not patience. Patience is like this tenor. It's like a culture of the heart. You can't can't simply obey that. It's a spirit product for those who are saved. So is the law now relevant for Christians? Yes, and more so. So is the fruit of the spirit. Now, this has all been very thick, especially in this fourth point with reading a lot of scripture all over the Bible. So let me see if I can simply send you on your way with a couple of memorable bits. One 
is the three G's I've already just briefly mentioned. Guilt, grace, gratitude. This is the outline and structure for the Heidelberg Catechism, which came out of the Reformation. And my, how good it is, how helpful it is, how pastoral it is. This is how we get saved. We understand our guilt. We're ready for grace. And when we understand grace, then we want to live in gratitude. We want to live it out. Where are you in that process today? And you might say, well, I'm a Christian, but my goodness, I feel like I've gone through that progression a million times over. Indeed, you have. Yep, that's part of the equation as well. See, in, in an era of grace, we do sometimes sin, often, and we feel the guilt of that. But we remember grace, and we're refreshed in grace. And we're renewed to live out our days in gratitude. Oh man, I have ridden that roller coaster of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, I don't know, something in the millions. Or perhaps if you're a, a poetry fan, you might take this home with you as a good summary to what we talked about this morning. Just a bit of poetry, often attributed to John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. Praise God for a new covenant where he's not only forgiven our sins, but written his law on his hearts. And all those in that covenant shall be his people, and they will have one God forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for such a grand word, the Bible. Thank you for such a grand plan. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself in law and in grace. We thank you for the grace of law. And we thank you, Lord, that you, in making us your people, would not stop at our forgiveness. But you would address our hearts. You would change us from the inside out. You would give us something of the power to begin to obey your commands that we may not go astray. We thank you for Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, we thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath rest that he is for us, not just Saturday or Sunday, but every day and every hour. May we continue to rest in him for our salvation. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.